Okay. Well, I want you to know I haven't gone that long without preaching in a long time. But it all worked out in the providence of God. Adrian Donato was good. And when we got a chance for Steve Lawson, even though, you know, he's not very passionate, we thought we got to have him. And then uh, I couldn't wait to preach, of course. And then I got the plague. And uh, I just could not do it. But I warned Tim Carnes in advance enough, so he had that wonderful sermon prepared. And it was really great. There was a couple behind us who were really hurting. And, and they said after the, the um, sermon, that, that was just the perfect sermon that we needed to hear. And so God in his providence worked that out. And, and then, of course, I was already scheduled to go to Washington. So I went up there, and I'm back now, though. And if the rapture doesn't happen and the ceiling doesn't fall on me, uh, we're going to get this sermon out. It's the first thing I do. The great reformer Martin Luther wrote a hymn sometime around 1529. It became very popular among those who were for the first time being called Protestants, a title they received at the Diet of Spires. They were called Protestants because they protested against the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. The hymn I'm referring to is A Mighty Fortress is Our God, one of the more well-known hymns that came out of the Reformation. Luther, being a man of of the book, knew that he was in a battle, that he was waging war not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. And you may not have noticed it, but Luther has a very strong emphasis in that hymn on the unseen battle that Christians are constantly engaged in. In the first stanza, he writes, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe, his craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Luther acknowledges several things. One, that we are in a spiritual battle. And two, that our battle is against Satan, our ancient foe. And three, it is Satan's purpose to work us woe or damn us. And four, that we should not underestimate Satan's craft and power, for Luther acknowledges they are great. Five, he reminds us that Satan is driven by cruel hate. And six, that among those on earth, Satan has no equal who can defeat him. Luther addresses the spiritual battle we are in a little further in the third stanza of his hymn when he writes, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, but we tremble not at him for his rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. Luther had it right. Luther had it right. Our world is filled with devils whose sole desire is to undo us. If we are not saved, he wants us to stay that way. And if we are saved, he wants to entangle us in sin so that we do not give glory to God. Our world is filled with devils and they are more powerful, they are more crafty, they are more experienced and they have greater intellects than we. They have refined the art of deception for millennia and they all have their quadruple doctorates in deception and delusion and false doctrine. To attempt to get people to believe lies as if they were the truth. And our hope, as Luther rightly said, is in the word of God. God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Not our experiences, not our intellects, but his truth to triumph through us. We have God's truth And we can be confident that in the end, Satan will be defeated 
And on judgment day, one little word will cast him into the lake of fire. Well, he will be done away with forever and ever. So we're on this sabbatical from our exposition of Luke to study angels and demons and Satan before looking at Luke's account of the Gerizim demoniac, which uh, Luke describes. As a matter of fact, Luke, because he's a doctor, is really fascinated with the whole idea of demon possession. And so we're going to keep encountering more and more situations in in the gospel of Luke. And I thought, you know, it'd just be better just to hold, just blow out the whole topic and then we can get back into Luke and make some progress. But we've already looked at angels, their creation, their appearance, their numbers, their ministry to both believers and unbelievers. And this morning I want to focus on demons. Demons. Because the world's influence on Christians, most do not have a biblical understanding of demons. If you were to read some of the books or articles that describe demons or demonic activity, most Of these works, even in your average Christian bookstore, are all derived not from the Bible, but from experiences people have had. Let me just give you one example. Fred Dickinson, who at first wrote a very good book on angels and demons, then became a little more fascinated with the topic. He wrote a later work called, uh, I think, Demon Possession is what it was. And this is what he says, quote, I queried the demon regarding his undercover mind control. He admitted to controlling the brain through electrical and chemical changes. We have power in that, was his confession. Again, we do not take such as scientific evidence, but his confirmation of controlling the mind through the brain must be considered. Why would he give away such damaging information except he were under pressure from the lord end quote that is amazing to me here dickinson thinks that because this demon has been told in the name of jesus tell me the truth that this demon is telling him the truth and he writes it in a book and it's one of the standard textbooks people read on the subject He has fallen to the error that C.S. Lewis warns about in his classic work, The Screwtape Letters, when he writes, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, end quote. You know, everyone... I have ever heard of or known of who has really gotten into demons and demonic activity. Every single one has been deluded without an exception. Never forget that demons are willing to give you an experience in order to delude you, to deceive you. In fact, the Bible promises that Satan and demons perform false signs and wonders to deceive even the elect if it were possible. I've talked to some Christians who were totally duped by these experiences they've had. And they have had the experience. The problem is, is they've formed doctrine off of those experiences. Oftentimes doctrines which specifically and directly contradict the clear teaching of Scripture. They take their supernatural demonic experiences and actually elevate them above the word of God itself. Let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's just say a Christian counselor starts counseling someone who professes to be a Christian, who has gone to church all their life, has quite a bit of knowledge about the Bible, and can articulate the gospel easily. The counselor assumes that the person is a Christian. During counseling, the person is obviously possessed, and we'll just say, Assume for the sake of argument that for certain the person is possessed by a demon. The Christian counselor remembers that Jesus cast out demons with the word. And so he says in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you come out of that person and nothing happens. The counselor is there stunned. And he's wondering, what do I do? And then he remembers the other text. 
where the disciples couldn't cast out a demon. And so they came to Jesus and Jesus says, oh, these kind come out by prayer. And so he falls on his knees. He confesses his sins. He petitions God. He acknowledges God's power. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out. And nothing happens. He doesn't know what to do. He racks his brain. He doesn't know what to do. Finally, frustrated and not knowing what to do, the counselor stops the session, says, I'm going to make an appointment. I want you to come back. And then he thinks, I'm going to get ready. And when this person comes back, that demon's coming out. In between appointments, the counselor labors diligently to read everything they can on demon possession from the letters uh, addressed to the church. And all of a sudden, he realizes that There is not a single thing said about casting demons out in all the letters to the church. Not a single fragment. So the counselor then turns to books and journal articles like the one I have just quoted from. Written by other people who have had, you guessed it, experiences with demons. And the next time the counseling session comes around, this counselor feels they're ready because they've read books and articles written by people who have dealt with these sorts of things and have had success or experiences that are successful. They have some holy water. They have a big gold cross. They have Christian music playing in the background. Pictures of Jesus on the walls. They have memorized a Roman Catholic prayer of exorcism and they think, okay, now I'm boned up. And when their patient comes in the office, instantly the demon starts speaking forth in another voice and and says, turn off this music and take out these pictures. And the counselor's thinking to himself, aha, it's working. The counselor then pulls out the rather large golden cross. The the person kind of shrinks back. The counselor then sits down, prays the Roman Catholic prayer of exorcism, sprinkles holy water on the person. And keep in mind all the while the person is, the demon is snarling in this other voice and the person is wreathing and swearing and apparently in much anguish. The counselor seeing he is doing something the demon doesn't like, gets more courage, is more convinced, and says, In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who came in the flesh, I command you to come out of that person and to be cast in the eternal abyss. And there is a loud hissing and snarling and screaming, and the counselor is thrown on the floor, and then all of a sudden becomes perfectly calm. Kind of is dazed and sits up and is clothed in their right mind. The demon is gone. And it worked. And there is much praise and the person is comforted, given some counsel, told to read their Bible, told to pray, told to come to church faithfully. The counselor is amazed. He hoped it would work. It worked. And he is a believer now in these things. He has seen it with his own eyes and heard it with his own ears. He has empirical data to prove this method works. Word gets around and pretty soon he's kind of considered the local demon expert because he has had some experiences. He starts seeing himself as an expert in exorcism. He begins to get more and more referrals and has the same experience over and over again. He writes a book. And more and more people adopt his method. And guess what? They all have the same experiences. And in every case, it seems to work. Now, what has happened here? I'll tell you what has happened. That counselor has been totally duped. Totally hoodwinked and deceived and deluded. He has been led astray and doesn't even know it. What the man doesn't realize is that people he assumes are Christians are not. He's just deceived into thinking they are because they have some religious background. He is deceived into thinking that he has authority to do what Jesus and the apostles did, but he does not. 
He has forgotten the scriptures that say even Michael, the archangel, did not dare pronounce against Satan a railing judgment, but said the Lord rebuke you and that those who do revile angelic majesties, the scriptures say are false teachers. He is deceived into thinking that there is such thing as holy water. And that that holy water has some sort of effect on those who are demon-possessed. He is deceived into thinking that there are canned prayers that can force demons to leave people. He is deceived into thinking that pictures of Jesus have some sort of, you know, powerful effect on people who are demon-possessed. Never stopping to realize we don't even know what Jesus looked like. He is deceived into thinking a golden cross has some sort of power against demons. He is deceived into thinking that he is an expert exorcist. He is totally in the dark, though, instead of the light. And he has accepted many lies and doesn't even know it. And though he fancies himself as some sort of spiritual, demonic, satanic warrior, in reality, he is working for Satan to deceive other people. He is exactly opposite of what he thinks he is. The whole thing is so convoluted, he is doing 180 degrees opposite of what God wants him to do because he has had some experiences. And that is what is happening in the world today. You can go to any Christian bookstore and find this lots of stuff just like this. Junk. Theological junk. Lies cloaked as truth. And the demons rejoice in their deception of this Christian counselor and how that Christian counselor, though a God-fearing man, is now working for them to deceive others. They praise their satanic leader. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. I'll just show you an example of this. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This text teaches everything. I just want you to know. I am so amazed in the Sermon on the Mount when I go through here how many cool things are in here. But I just want to focus on one little strain of thought. This whole idea of being deceived. This is Jesus talking about the end times when these people are going to stand before him on judgment day. And Jesus says this, verse 21 of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Now notice this. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And Jesus declares to them something very interesting. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice that. They think they're saved, but are not. They think they're in the church because they gather with the church, but they are not. They think they're doing good works, but instead are sinning. They think they are doing good works in the name of Jesus, but are not. They think they are prophesying, casting out demons and performing many miracles by Jesus's power, but are not. Now, could you get any more twisted than that? Could you get any more convoluted than that? I mean, imagine being at church and growing up and doing all these things. You stand before the Lord and he says, sorry, you're a child of Satan. You are just sinning into the lake of fire you go. These people are totally deceived, deluded and duped. They think they're Christians and they're the children of Satan and they don't even know it. They're doing Satan's work, not God's, and they don't even know it. They are the spiritually dead, the spiritually blind. They are held captive by the arch enemy of God, waging war against Christ in Christ's church, or at least among Christ's people. And Jesus describes these people as many, many. I hope that scares you. I hope that kind of makes you feel a little uneasy. It makes me feel uneasy. 
I hope it motivates you to pursue biblical discernment about the condition of your own soul and what is really true and what is not. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, Jack, you know, come on. You have my attention now and you've scared me a little bit, but what's the cure here? I mean, you know, how do I know what's true and what's not? Well, here it, here it is now. The only hope to keep from being deluded is to relentlessly and slavishly study the word of God and interpret it accurately. That is the only way. God has willed his truth to triumph through us over Satan. A while back, we went to the science center, you know, and I'd never been there before. My kids had been there a bunch of times and we were going through and, and, uh, there was a display that was kind of a, you know, kind of a little magic show display. And, uh, one of the, one of the people can run back there. You can run back. You kind of crawl through this little hole and you get in there and you kneel down and put your chin on this little chin rest and as soon as you do that all of a sudden the, you know there's applause and the curtains start rising and everybody who's standing there looking sees a talking head with no body no body and you look and there's you know your son <laughs> a head with no body And you get closer and you look and there is no body. And you get closer and you look. There still isn't one. There is no body there. Of course, you know, being intelligent and thinking, well, heads do not talk without bodies. (laughs) And uh, I am sure that this is some sort of trick or delusion because, you know, heads separated from bodies do not laugh like that. And it's not until you go on a little further and you see the diagram and you realize that this is an illusion. It is illusion created by mirrors. And then you go back and you look again. And you still can't see how they do it, even though you've been told the answer. It still is amazing. It's still convincing. I just want you to know, Satan and demons are way better than that. They are way, way better than that. They are master deceivers. They can get you to think that there are heads without bodies that can talk. And it's not until you study the word of God and accurately interpret it that you can know how Satan's tricks are done. There are even times when people know the truth and still believe the lie because it's so convincing. I've talked to people and they've said, well, you know, this is what happened. I said, well, what does the word of God say? Yeah, but this is what happened. What does the word of God say? I know it says that, but I'm just telling you, what does the word of God say? And you can tell they're just, they want to believe the lie so bad because they've had some sort of encounter or experience. Listen, just because you encounter a head with no body, it doesn't mean that it's true. No matter how convincing it may seem, never believe anything that is contrary to the word of God. So this morning, all that's introduction. For this morning, (laughs) I want to talk to you about demons, where they came from, what they are, and some of the things they do. Next, Next time we'll look at Satan. The first thing is you need to know what demons are and where they came from. Demons are holy angels who have fallen or rebelled. How do we know this? Matthew 25, 41. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus speaking of the judgment of Satan and demons says, Then he will also say to those in his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Here we learn that demons are referred to as the devil's angels. This is interesting because God didn't create demons. He created holy angels. And yet some of those holy angels have rebelled against God. And so when Jesus is judging these unbelievers, he lets them know that 
unbelievers, because you did not receive my son so as to be saved, you get to go to the place where I prepared for Satan and his angels to go. A similar text is in Revelation chapter 12. Turn there, Revelation chapter 12, very end of your Bible. Here, John is describing some sort of event that is happening during the tribulation period. And he says this in Revelation 12, verse 4. And I'll just give you a commentary. And his, that is Satan's tail, swept away a third of the stars of heaven. Stars here are a reference to angels. And threw them to the earth, which tells us that the number of holy angels that sided with Satan and became demons are one third of all that God created. And the dragon, another name for Satan, stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. So what is describing here is, um, is this, uh, this desire of Satan to devour this woman's child. The woman here is referring to, um, uh, Israel and the and the child is Christ look down at verse 7 and there was war in heaven and Michael and his angels waged war with the dragon and the dragon and his angels waged war so notice John refers to Satan and demons as the dragon and his angels look down at verse 10 and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying now the salvation and power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren another title for Satan has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night So it is clear from these verses that demons are angels who rebelled with Satan against God. They were holy angels originally, but now because of their rebellion, they are now demons. The number of them is a lot. We don't know how many, but in the previous message, we learned that how many angels are there? Thousands upon thousands and myriads of myriads, which is lots. And so Luther had it right when he said, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, there are a lot of demons working for Satan right now to damn the souls of men and deceive Christians into believing lies. Demons are called by other titles in the Bible. They are called unclean spirits, wicked or evil spirits, deceiving spirits, spirits of demons, spirits of divination, lying spirits, and as we learn, Satan's angels. And realize that since Satan is the leader of demons, a lot of times the activities of demons are attributed to Satan. In other words, Satan can only be one place at a time, but his demons are everywhere. And since he is their general and they are his soldiers, a lot of demonic activity, the scripture just attributes to Satan's activity since he is their leader. Now, one of the things that you need to be careful of when you study demons is don't think of them as kind of people who live in the spiritual realm. They are not. They are much greater and much higher above people. And they are extremely crafty and intelligent. I mean, think about this. Imagine what it would be like to live for 7,000 years. To have a photographic memory, to remember everything you've ever learned, and to labor relentlessly, tirelessly, never having to sleep on deceiving people, to learn how to deceive them in many ways, to get them to believe lies. You continue to grow over the millennia in your evil and wicked craft. Satan and his demonic legions are far, far wiser than even the greatest intellects among men. Eve, in her perfect sinless state, was easily led astray into believing an entire bushel of lies in a very short amount of time. I mean, just remember what happened. 
And, and just, just a span, just in a very short amount of time, what did, what did Satan accomplish? He had, he had Eve believing all sorts of things that were convoluted and Eve didn't even know she was sinless. She was, you know, when you think about it, there wasn't a whole lot that, you know, Eve needed to know. Don't eat from that tree. I mean, is that difficult? That's it. There wasn't like, you know, 613 commandments in the Old Testament. There was one rule. No eat of that tree. And that's it. And by the time Satan worked her over in about five minutes, he had her believe in every a whole ton of things, which we'll look at in a minute. So that's where demons came from. That's what they are. Now let's talk about what demons do. You need to know what demons do. Demons can possess unbelievers. Some people think that demons can possess Christians, but be assured they cannot. It is a theological impossibility, which we will address in a future message. They can possess those who think they are Christians, but are not. But if someone is truly saved, the scriptures say the evil one cannot touch them. But what is demon possession? What is demon possession? Demon possession is when one or more demons takes total control of a person from within. That's it. They take over from within. And when they do this, according to the scriptures, it causes a lot of different interesting side effects. For instance, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 32, we read, And as they were going out, behold, the dumb man, demon-possessed, was brought to him, that is, to Jesus. And if you read on, Jesus casts out the demon, the man's no longer dumb. So in this, this instance, this, this man had a, an apparent illness, but the illness was really the demon in him causing that illness. That was a symptom of the problem, which is demon-possession. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 18, we read this. And when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. He is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out and the boy was cured at once. Notice that in this text, the demon made this young man appear to be a lunatic or out of his mind or self-destructive. You ever encounter anyone like that? It makes you wonder, doesn't it? We will learn when we get to the Gerizim demoniac that demons can also cause people to have supernatural strength. And Luke, because he's so fascinated this, he describes demon possession with more detail than anyone else. In Luke 9, 38, we read about a demon-possessed person who is described with these words, and behold, a spirit seizes him and suddenly and he suddenly screams and it throws him into convulsions with foaming at the mouth and... As it mauls him, it scarcely leaves him, which sounds like a grand mal seizure, doesn't it? In Luke chapter 13, verses 11 through 16, Luke writes, And behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. Jesus went on to heal the lady, but it was on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees protested. And when Jesus describes the woman... He describes the woman as someone whom Satan has bound for 18 long years. Of course, Satan wasn't there. It was a demon, but it was attributed to Satan since they work for for him. Again, Satan is out there doing things, and he's even causing what appears to be illnesses. Now, you know, you ask yourself, well, well, Jack, how come people aren't, you know, possessed today like they were in the New Testament? Well, they are. 
The answer is they are. The problem is, is that we don't believe they are. We refuse to believe they are. Doctors, they never have on their possible diagnosis demon possession. They're always after the symptom. They're trying to cure the symptom. Take this pill for this symptom. Take this thing for this symptom. They're always after the symptom. But since doctors don't believe in demon possession, they never think of that as being the root problem. And so they just treat symptoms rather than the root cause. Again, we're going to delve into this more demon possession more in the future. But moving on, another thing we learned that demons do is from first Corinthians chapter 10. Turn there. We mentioned this text when we were looking at Christian liberties. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. Where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, he's talking about, you know, eating meats. He's saying, you know, listen, you know, don't go to the, you know, idol barbecue and grill in back of the pagan temple and have lunch because someone might see you there and be defiled and think that you are participating in demonic or satanic or pagan worship. And in verses 19 through 21, he says, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot participate or or partake of the cup, uh, the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You see what he's saying here? Because demons are behind idolatry, because they promote idolatry, because they deceive people into practicing idolatry, Paul says to sacrifice to an idol is really to sacrifice to the demon behind that idol. I don't know if you've ever wondered how it can be that intelligent people will worship idols. You just think, Uh, how can they do this? They pray to them, they worship them, they ask them for things. I mean, the prophets just have a heyday with this stuff. You know, they just talk about, oh yeah, some guy gets a nice piece of wood and cuts a chunk off of it, carves it into an idol. The rest of the chips and the other piece, he cooks his dinner on it. And then he carries the idol around and worships it and asks it for things. Is, Is that... Uh, that's I say, you just think, are you kidding me? Uh, that is, that seems brainless. How brainless can they be? And yet people through the centuries, through the millennia have worshiped idols. And you wonder why? All you got to do is talk to the testimonies of those who have come out of idol worship and witchcraft and other pagan religions. And they tell you why they had experiences. And those experiences were real and enough to convince them that committing their idolatry was a good thing and a necessary thing for them to do. Maybe they had their prayers answered or some sickness healed or have had some conversation with someone raised from the dead. You know, people do this thing called channeling where they allow demons to speak through them. And a lot of times people, when the demon speaks, they speak in the exact same voice of, you know, grandmother so-and-so who has died and gone away. Or they write out some letter or note. And if you take that letter and you compare it to something the person wrote when they, they were alive, it's identical. And people get convinced about it. They're thinking, oh, yeah, I talked to my grandmother. No, you didn't. You talked to a demon. Oh, they told me things, you know. I said, demon. Yeah, but the hand, demon. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul talks about another thing that demons do. They not only promote idolatry. Not only possess people, 
This is what we read. But the Spirit explicitly says, verse 1, that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Here he talks about apostasy, those who fall away from the Christian faith because they have paid attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, granted, in almost all cases, the demons or Satan do not appear to people and teach them things. What they do is they deceive people. And those people are the false teachers that are used by Satan to lead other people away from the truth. The men and women that Satan and demons have deceived then become their instruments for promoting the doctrines of demons. Demons are behind false doctrine. And some of their doctrines may not even seem all that bad. If you look at uh, verse 3 of, of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, he talks about men who forbid marriage and abstain from foods. And you think to yourself, you know, that doesn't seem all that, you know, scary. You know, what's the big deal about, you know, abstaining from marriage? I mean, we have a lot of singles in the church. There's a lot of people who aren't married. I mean, they're fine. What's the big deal about saying, you know, you should Stay single. I mean, Paul even says, if you have the gift, stay single. Well, there's nothing wrong with being single. There's nothing wrong with wanting to get married and yet not having found the right person or even having the gift to where you just realize, you know, I just don't have a desire to really be married. I'm going to stay single the rest of my life. That's fine. But as soon as you start thinking that you're a little bit holier, you're a little bit more righteous or you're a little bit more endearing to God or God, you know, has a little bit more favor on you because you are single. You have bought into the doctrines of demons. J.C. Ryle in his work, Light from Old Times, gives us a good example of this very serious demonic doctrine of celibacy forcing celibacy teaching people that if they do it'll be on some higher spiritual plane writing about the condition of the priesthood before the english reformation ryle wrote this quote the blackest spot on the character of our pre-reformation clergy in england is one of which is too painful to speak i mean the impurity of their lives and their horrible contempt for the seventh commandment. And if you're sitting there going, I wonder which one that is. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The result of auricular, probably not a word you use very much. It just means uh, hearing uh, auricular confession, that is confessions that have been heard. Carried on by men bound by their vow never to marry were such that I dare not enter into them. The consequences of shutting up herds of men and women in the prime of their life in monasteries and nunneries were such that I will not defile my readers' minds by dwelling upon them. Suffice it to say that the discoveries made by Henry VIII's commissioners of the state of things in many so-called, quote, religious houses were such as it is impossible to describe anything less holy than the practice of many of the, quote, holy men and women in these professedly, quote, holy retreats from sin in the world, the imagination cannot conceive, end quote. And though Henry VIII was no paragon of virtue, And though for greed and political reasons, he broke away from the Roman Catholic Church to start the Anglican Church, or what we know in America as the Episcopal Church, in order to seize their holdings and have autonomy and kill another wife and marry a new one. He sent out his commissioners into these nunneries and these monasteries to see what was going on. And I am telling you, When Ryle says the imagination cannot conceive, that is exactly the truth. As the Roman Catholic Church began to evolve, the first ruling was made in 306 AD at the Council of Elvira that clergy must remain celibate and that those who did not practice celibacy were to be excommunicated. Pope Sericius in the the latter council of 384 to 394 made a similar ruling and a whole group of popes after him said the same thing. If you're going to be a priest, you have to be celibate, whether you have the gift or not. Why? Because it puts you on a little higher spiritual plane. 
Buddhism teaches the same thing. So did other ancient cults. And this people is the doctrine of demons. And history has borne out, even in our own days, that when you take a person who does not have the gift of singleness and you say you need to be single, then you create huge temptation and dens of iniquity. The second doctrine that Paul mentions is the abstaining from foods. Now, to most, that this really seems harmless. So, you know, you don't eat pizza. Big deal. But Paul says, if you tell someone that eating or drinking or not eating or drinking something is a sin, or that if you abstain from this or that, it puts you on a little higher spiritual plane, makes you a little more acceptable to God or makes you right before God, that is a doctrine of demons. And if you've studied church history, you know that there have always been groups who promote eating or abstaining from certain foods. Don't eat any meat on Friday unless it's fish. The idea is that you will be more godly, more acceptable to God if you abstain from certain foods. This is a lie, a lie. Some even go so far as to think that if certain people, you know, do drink or eat certain things that they can't even be Christians. And when you get to that place, you're, you're talking about a damning heresy because you're no longer trusting Christ and Christ alone to save you. You're now trusting in your abstinence or participation in some sort of food group. (laughs) And that is a damning heresy. Paul goes on to Say in verses 4 and 5 of 1 Timothy 4, For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by the means of the word of God in prayer. You need to search your own mind. If you're thinking to yourself, well, if you people abstain from this, they're a little bit more holy, you've bought into a doctrine of demons. That is not true. Food does not make you right before God. Now, granted, there are legitimate reasons for abstaining from things. You know, you want to lose some weight or, you know, you want to have the moderate consumption of things or you don't want to cause a weaker brother to stumble. But listen, food does not save you or make you righteous. And anybody who tells you that has succumbed to a doctrine of demons. That's what Paul says. Abstaining from marriage and foods are just two examples. If you turn over to Colossians chapter 2... Paul gives us a couple more examples. Paul says this in Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23. He says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. None. They do not sanctify you. They do not save you. And those are just two examples. One more text. Romans chapter, or Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. Here we learn of a little bit more of demonic activity. We mentioned it. I just want to make sure it's confirmed by the word of God before we close up here. This is speaking of the tribulation where... Three unclean spirits are sent forth by Satan. John says in verse 14 of Revelation 16, For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Here we see how demons are able to perform signs, deceive and manipulate kings and entire nations. Imagine that. And all the while, these people think they're doing what's right. They're just pawns of Satan. If you are sitting out there and you are saved, praise God. But if you're not, you just need to know this. This is what the scriptures say. 
You are a child of Satan. You are held captive by Satan to do his will. Satan is working in you. And you may think, well, Jack, I, I go to church. It doesn't matter. He's working in you while you're among believers. Yeah, I know I'm not a believer, but Satan's not in control of me. Yes, he is. You are deluded. You are deceived. You are in darkness. And there is only one cure. And that cure is for you to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do that, God will transfer you from the kingdom of darkness and move you to the kingdom of his beloved son. You will cease becoming a child of Satan. You will become a child of God. The Holy Spirit will open your eyes. You will see the truth. You will see your sin. You will see the delusion that you are in thinking you could be religious and yet escape Satan's control. Jesus died on the cross and made a sufficient sacrifice that God is willing to accept on your behalf if you're willing to receive Jesus as your Savior. He paid the just punishment and penalty that you deserve, and he is willing to save you right now, to forgive you right now now to adopt you right now so that the evil one will not touch you so that his spirit will be in you so that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world and then you will begin to really have victory because for the first time you will be right with god and have the resources which god supplies so that satan will not jerk you around on his delusional chain So you need to cry out to God in your heart and receive Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be rescued and you will be changed. And believe me, the blinders will come off. All you got to do is hear the testimonies up here during the evening services when people are getting baptized and you hear over and over again. I was so blind. I was so clueless. Yeah, but if you would have talked to them, they knew what they were doing. They weren't blind. They weren't deceived. Oh, yes, they were. Everyone is who doesn't know Christ. But if you do know Christ, as you leave here today, realize that this world with devils filled threatens to undo you. Realize that demons are experts in deception and that you must not trust in experiences you've had, but in the word of God alone to base your doctrine. You need to realize that Satan is working overtime to keep unbelievers deceived so that they don't come to christ his favorite delusion is to make them think they're christians because they come and worship among the saints for beware of the doctrines of demons that do not conform to the word of god and finally do not be ignorant of satan's schemes study the word of god and it will show you how his tricks are performed and it's the only source that will let's pray father we thank you for being able to look at demons this morning Father, we don't want to have an unhealthy interest in them, and yet we do not want to be ignorant of their schemes. We want to understand the gravity of the situation that we are in, that we are in a spiritual battle, that demons are filling this world, and Father, they are working night and day to render Christians ineffective, to entangle them in sin so that they do not give you glory to promote idolatry and father to teach false doctrines. So we believe lies thinking they are true. And father, if there is somebody in here this morning who has never repented of their sins, which I'm sure there is, and is a child of Satan, I pray right now, your fear, your dread would fall upon them, that you would grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they would be saved and believed and adopted into the family of God. So they can experience full forgiveness and peace The great blessing it is to have your resources and the Holy Spirit living within them to guide them and seal them until the day of redemption. Father, do it for your namesake and for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.